Hi, my name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Today, I'm joined by Leah Sharif. Qualcomm's head of global brand, advertising, content, and creative services. Leah is such an iconic person and personality. She is a fellow immigrant, her story is incredible, and she comes from a family of journalistic excellence and discipline. She tells us a story of how she grew up witnessing her family care about journalistic truth and storytelling and story finding. And as such, she felt inspired in her career to go ahead and pursue this, even at a time when the industry wasn't even ready for it. She started the content function at Qualcomm over 10 years ago, when content wasn't even a thing. There was definitely no podcast around it. What I think is so interesting about Leah's story is not just her thought leadership, but also how she's thought about arguing for content inside of Qualcomm as an organization, how she's thought about creating the story that tells the success of content, but also articulates the ways in which it could be improved. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it's going to be very useful to the content leaders out there who are trying to learn from someone who's done this for a really long time before it was even cool to do this. Her passion for this type of storytelling really bleeds through our conversation, and you'll see that it really touches everything she works on. Here's my conversation with Leah Sheriff. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another session of Pros and Content. I'm here in sunny San Diego. Um, I wasn't forced to come here. I came here with a lot of joy. It's one of my favorite cities in the U.S., but the main reason I'm here is to talk to one of the smartest and most progressive content leaders I've ever met, Leah, who's my guest today. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thank you so much. That's quite a compliment. Oh, I, I don't give gratuitous compliments. Um, I remember when I first met you, I was shocked with how data-driven you were and also how creative you were and also how direct you were just as a person. I think that comes from being an immigrant. Um, and I wanted to just have you share a little bit of your story at first. Tell us where you started, what got you interested in content, what got you to move from your previous life to your brand life, and how are you thinking about content and kind of the career progression of a content leader now? How much time do we have? <laughs> as much as we need. Don't I, worry I've about had that. a long life speaking of immigration, but I'm going to try to tie my life to where I am today. And I'm going to try to yeah. do it in a nonlinear fashion or it will take a long time. So mm -hmm. I do come from a former Soviet Union. I come from Azerbaijan, so not too far from you. And yep. um, my first language is Russian. So I came to the United States about 30 years ago. And uh, my original education from just getting good education, like all, all of us did in the Russian uh, brought up cultured environments, we also, I also went to a ballet school. So I was a professional ballet dancer. Oh, my goodness. I was a I professional ballroom dancer, but I did a lot of ballet yeah. to begin with. So, so I went to a professional ballet school for nine years. It's kind of like um, Juilliard. Very disciplined. Yeah. Uh, a lot of work. Um, many hours a day of dance and also academics, et cetera. 
So I was a dancer and then um, I immigrated to the United States. And so when I immigrated, my first job, actually, instead of working as a lot of immigrants go and they find jobs, whatever jobs that you can, um, I was teaching dance. So that was great because Russian, Russian ballet is, is quite valued. Did you come to San Diego? I came to New York. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Like, where all the, where did, where did all you the live in Brooklyn or Russian immigrants go? Queens? Uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah, nice. that's where my daughter was born. But just taking a step back um, to my previous life bef- before uh, immigration, uh, my mother was a journalist, mm. 35 years journalist. And my father was in, in, in academia and historian. So, um, and also the culture I come from, uh, storytelling and uh, storytelling and just stories and both from the journalistic standpoint, from my family side, and also just in general, are just a huge part of our lives. So I brought it to the United States. And so as my career was moving from dance back to university, getting my education, and then entering business and uh, finding my way through business world, I realized very quickly, I'm bad at math. <laughs> so I cannot go into any, uh, any of the deep sciences and that I love strategy and I love creative. So I moved from, through PR, I worked in startups, hmm. uh, I, I, I was doing communications, uh, moved through different marketing disciplines, still trying to find sort of searching for that passion point of mine hmm. where I can connect both my creative uh, interests, the storytelling interests, and also strategy work. And so um, as I ended up uh, at Qualcomm, uh, I worked here for the past 10 years. I've done a lot of things here too. Um, started the social practice here, worked through um, communications, speakers and sponsorships, eventually I landed a brand, which is what I love the most. And so uh, throughout all of that period, I also launched the content practice at Qualcomm, the very first one that uh, we launched eight or nine years ago when the brands were just still just dipping their toes into native advertising and branded mm-hmm. content and was called brand journalism. So at the time, we actually launched a site called Qualcomm Spark, and it was a brand journalism website that was built around storytelling from the brand standpoint. And so we, we were there early. And we started early. What gave you the idea to even do it? Just the passion for it and the yeah. need for, uh, for the brands to tell more compelling stories, more uh, interesting, inspiring stories to really start breaking, breaking through. And that was just sort of where the world was going, right? The, the social media was, was birthing, the, the content marketing was coming, coming to life, the mm-hmm. brands started to break through, creating their own content. And so that's kind of what... I was passionate about, so I started researching more and more, and we brought it to Qualcomm, and that's how it all started. And then uh, as I moved into brand and content became part of the brand organization, obviously now today, uh, we're very focused on bringing the, br- the content through the lens of the brand, and mm-hmm. not just lens of the brand, to your point, uh, through the lens of the audience. So kind of uh, the long story short, we're here today. So um, I never told you this, but I read about you way before I got in touch with anyone mm. at Qualcomm. And uh, I didn't really know how to really get to you slash be introduced to you. But I remember reading that you were one of the first to start a journalistic practice inside of a brand. And I thought to myself, what is it about San Diego and Qualcomm that's special that's gotten people to do this first in that you know company? Mm. Um, and here I am talking to you now. What what was it? Was it something to do with your journalistic background or, you know, having having gone through all these different experiences that made you realize that finding these stories inside the company would connect better the company with an audience? 
Uh, I think I think it's a combination of several things, but one of one of them is it's definitely a passion for journalistic storytelling. Mm. That's always been with me. It's in my DNA. It's something I truly believe works. And when I started seeing that brands had an opportunity to step into that domain, um, it was a recognition that it would really benefit for the company to start speaking in and more factual. Uh, inverted pyramid type of voice, which is what journalism is all about, mm. and and it was it's it's it was the beginning of the impetus. Other brands were doing it. We weren't the first, but we were probably in the first ten. Obviously, on the consumer side, it was earlier, but then the B two B companies started stepping in, mm-hmm. and also um, we didn't have huge advertising dollars, and so for a brand that is largely unknown with little advertising dollars content seemed like the right place to break to break through mm. and also to uh to really tell a complex story you have to tell a complex story you really have to unpack it in the simpler ways and so the journalistic approach or a branded approach to content made sense at the time and also there was passion for it and i also think i had support around the company people really believed this was the right thing to do for qualcomm because of the complexity of our story well, this is what I wanted to to ask as a follow up question. Back when you first started this, there were obviously not a lot of precedents around you. How did you argue for the value of this unknown investment? I we had to put together some numbers and we had to put together some data around this being the right first step. Uh, we had to uh, measure. And so at the time, we really had to really look at how content is measured from the very beginning, and hmm. it was very early on, before your time. Probably, And so there were different ways, and, and people were struggling to really address the measurement of the deeper content storytelling. But um, we had support internally, because people clearly knew that Qualcomm is unknown, that Qualcomm's story is very difficult to tell, mm. and it's yeah. it, it was time to start telling that story. So we created a strategy that um, we were able to sell all the way to the top at the time. It made sense to uh, to executive team. And also we had support from our marketing organization th- for, from the lead at the time who was leading the marketing. So as awesome. you know, in the big company, you have to you have to gather a, a garner support. Totally. Um, you and, have to manage up, and manage just around. Just to, to tell you, we, we tried and we failed a few times too. So this mm. wasn't like all successful all around. It mm. was one of those experiments that... Uh, uh, that we that allowed us to evolve our content strategy over the course of years. So we're and, much in different place now than we were, let's say, eight nine years ago when we just started it. You know, obviously, whenever people talk about startups, they talk about how you have to fail in mm-hmm. order to learn. But in large organizations, I often find that when you try to sell something that's completely new, you get one shot. So how did you manage, continue to manage up as you were learning and failing and learning and failing? I, I think it's about progress. It's not about a, a start and stop. So what, what we've learned, for example, let me give you an example. We've learned that building a separate site and driving people to a different destination is, is, was a mistake. At the time, it seemed like a good idea. But then it required additional dollars, additional places to send traffic. It didn't serve mm. our SEO strategy uh, for Qualcomm in general. So that was one example of uh, a tactic that probably would not fly today, but at the time it seemed like a right, right tactic. So we changed those things as we learn. And so we were learning and we were understanding the data 
We were understanding how people were engaging with our content, what worked, what didn't. So there was a lot of learnings. And so we saw progress as we moved through our journey in the last eight right. years. Essentially, you weren't there yet. It wasn't that, that it was a binary thing where you had to deliver some hardcore numbers at the end of a month. Right? We were inventing. You were inventing, right. And creating right. a vision. Right. And so that's what happens. You know this. As, as you invent a vision, you, some, some things you can really predict in advance and some things you learn as you go. Totally. And I think we are in a different place today, in a stronger place. We still have a strong content team in-house, in small one. Mm. And then we've learned a lot of lessons on how to drive our content to the marketplace. The insight that you just gave us around not creating a separate content hub that sits outside of the main website. It's so funny that you said that because we are literally ad notch having this debate internally around pros and content and whether we want to separate it completely to make it an editorially independent mm -hmm. um, hub, which we have all intention of making it. But then how do we tie it back to who we are and what we care about as a company? Um, how did you think about maintaining some some independence in the storytelling and creating credibility and authenticity in the stories you told, especially thinking about where you place them? Back then or today? Well, I'm interested in the evolution. Yes, the evolution. So at the time, what drove a separate hub was just that, a separate independent editorial mm. component to the storytelling. Credibility, mm -hmm. right? The journalistic mm -hmm. credibility. And we had really interesting contributors. We had a contributor strategy into, mm. the, into the hub, not just our own storytelling. We right. brought people from outside. Oh, and interesting. And it was really an interesting approach. It was almost like a branded journal or branded magazine right. by Qualcomm, right? And it's very hard to maintain if you don't have enough dollars and investment totally. to, to yeah. pour into yeah. it. It's a good strategy if you can maintain it, if you can build it into a magazine-like format, digital format in this case. It yep. was all digital. And, but for Qualcomm at the time, it was clear that between the invest, the, the, the lower investment that we could put into the, into this type of uh, enterprise and the need for SEO and the need to drive traffic to our own properties, it made sense for us to shift everything to the owned content properties that we had at the time and then grew from there. Did you feel like you managed to maintain some of the things that attracted the audience's I think originally? we I think we were we were able to maintain some editorial independence on in our blog property. I think that we lost that magazine like framework. Right. However, we still have um we still approach our content in some ways with the newsroom mentality. Mm. Is it factual? Is it thought provoking? Is there conflict? Is there tension in the story? Mm, right. And uh, is it interesting, most importantly, to our audiences? Is it yeah. audience-led? So right. that is where we are today. We really went through a lot of interesting learnings. But one of the biggest insights that I took away from it, as any magazine or any publisher will tell you, if you want to publish, you need to publish with an eye on the audience first. Because a lot of us talk inside baseball when we're inside the company we talk to ourselves we think this is really important we think this story is really relevant hmm. but what do our audiences think and so how can we make it utility driven for them mm -hmm. how can we make it really relevant to them mm -hmm. and make it a utility this mm -hmm. this piece of content this this story or this blog or this conversation and so that's when we turned it around 
we have to really come from the audience-led uh, point of view, which is always challenging. How do you police yourself and make sure that you are continuing to be audience-led versus repeat some of the internal echo chamber? Is it by bringing in partners from the outside or do you have a framework internally? So I think that there's two parts to it. I would I would lie if I told you that we've uh, nailed this perfectly. <laughs> and actually some of the An honest marketer, wow. And, uh, well, <laughs> you told me I was direct. So yes, yes, <laughs> there we go. I'm being as direct as I out. can. I think that um, the truth here is that I think we've nailed it when it comes to 360 large-scale advertising campaigns because we're very audience-focused when it mm-hmm. comes to those. And so we're, whether we walk, work with our publishers mm-hmm. for the paid-branded content yep, yep. types of programs or whether we work across our own channels, as it relates to that campaign, it works really well. Um, I also think from the product, uh, product category that we have, uh, Snapdragon, we also really focus on the audiences in that domain. Um, who are those people? What's important to them? I think we understand that audience. But I would say we still end up with a lot of things landing on our blog that may or may not be relevant to others, but yep. it's relevant to us. Right. Uh, whoever the either the author is or, who is or a byline or a group or the organization that thinks it's really important to tell their story. And there's not a lot of properties, right? So you got to figure out how to allow for the folks to have voice. So it gives the voice, do we always reach the right audience with all of our content? Probably not. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about your paid partners, how do you think about the selection of paid partners? Is it the same selection every year? Do you change it? And if so, what makes you choose one partner versus another? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go back to that insight I mentioned to you. It's based on the audience mm, first. Right. Uh, and then it's based on a, a set of screening criteria and filters that we go through uh, judiciously to understand uh, between uh, the publisher and the audience we want to target and also the stories that we want to communicate, how those all interact in that publisher's reach. So between the, and obviously scale, we're also looking at scale. So we have two categories of publisher publishers we work with. One category is in our product domain when we want to communicate the product leadership stories. And the other is the company thought leadership. So those may include uh, business-like type of publications mm-hmm. or the publications that are relevant, uh, may be relevant to targets in government ocu- right. occupied um, right. areas. Mm-hmm. And so... They vary based on all of those different uh, filters. And so there's a lot of filters we go through to identify the publishers. And because we've worked with publishers now for some years, we actually can look at the performance. Over time. Which should be dear to your heart. Yeah, totally. We're, we're, I mean, the publishers actually good at measuring their audiences. And a lot of times they bring us data points and information that's based on KPIs we identify at the beginning of every partnership. Um, give us that learning and that information. So I would say after some years of working with publishers, we've now probably identified and selected those that we know work well for an objective we're carrying on today. It may change next year, but the objectives we have today um, help us identify and work with publishers that uh, already gave us some learnings. We'll be right back to pros and content after this brief message. (music) 
The Pros and Content Podcast is brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform for brands. For a demo, and to learn how to best plan, measure, optimize, and benchmark your content marketing strategy, visit us at Notch.com. K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. Notch. It's all you'll ever need. You talk about product and the government stakeholders and the brand. How many different stakeholders do you try to cater to with content? It depends, again, and as to what the content is addressing. And so uh, if we're talking at the corporate Qualcomm level, then we have a set of audiences. Mm-hmm. And if we talk at the product level, we probably have a different or additional set of audiences. So mm. a lot of times, for example, from the product category, we talk to a, a tech uh, enthusiast. Mm. And right. these are people who love their devices and they are willing to go to the store and buy those devices first or soon after. Yeah, they're and the so nerds. Those are, those, <laughs> some of them are the nerds and then you have a broader population right, right, right. of tech uh, tech, tech influencer, yeah, tech yeah, influencer. Yeah. So we uh, we target those through our branded content programs on the product side, and then on the corporate side, we add other audiences that are relevant to us at any given point in in the life cycle of the brand or a challenge we're trying to solve with any particular campaign that we're running. So let's talk a little bit about how you've organized and architected the structure of the content organization. Um, all the different content personas you're catering to, so the product versus the corporate brand, does that sit under the same team and is that the content team? Yeah, or is so, it separate? so the content team uh, is, a, is sort of a service organization. Think mm. of it as an organization that is a discipline in, in, the, in the company now that we're building with best practices, with audience definitions, et cetera, et cetera. And with, it's centralized. With talent inside that organization, as small as it may be. Right. The talent is still really important. So we have writers, we have video creators, we have sort of producers, we have traffickers, so people who are really working through all the content journey. Right. And then we work with our subject matter experts. So it's a strong collaboration between us and the product team, for example, and they're true experts on their messaging on or on their priorities mm-hmm. and in a particular business BU. So product marketing organization is, is a strong partner. And then on the corporate side, Similarly, we work with uh, key uh, stakeholders. So it's a, I think it's a matrix with the content at the core as a discipline that really drives best practice, not just best practice of what the company needs, but what is the best way to produce content, to deliver content, what formats are important. So there's, there's a disciplinary um, expertise. Yeah, that, yeah like that a governance layer. With, that's governance layer. And so within the brand, there's also creative layer. So there's just a lot of different parts that that discipline has to carry. And then also continuing to refine the audiences. You know, something that's fascinating to me as we explore this realm of content is that it's a discipline that belongs to everyone. And in some organizations, it belongs to no one as a result of it. Um, Some companies say we want to centralize. We have an internal content studio. We have an internal center of excellence around content. Other companies, I'd say especially tech companies that have a lot of products and business units and uh, geographical market teams, they say no content should be everyone's job, right? Like everyone should be creating content. Have you seen different models? Obviously, in your case, you've centralized, but do you think there's merits to the decentralized model? Yes, and I think we're actually, I think we're a hybrid. 
I would say we centralized a portion of content marketing discipline under brand. But I also see, and we all support that, is that it's very difficult for us to drive all of the content from just a discipline because we're not spending all all the time on, on the expertise of what the message may be. Right. And so in our case, it's a hybrid and um, it works most of the time, not all the time. Again, there are challenges with a lot of stakeholders, but this is really more cultural. Every company has a different culture, how they produce content. And I actually want to agree with something you just said strongly, in fact, is that Everybody creates some sort of content in every company. It's hard to really centralize it in one organization. Um, some organizations, as you know, have created agencies before inside a company. We're yep. not that big and we're not a consumer-led, so we don't have an internal agency. We have small pockets of it. Mm-hmm. And so those companies uh, who had that or have that model of internal agency, they often produce everything in-house. It goes through the agency. They write a brief. So... We don't have that model uh, for Qualcomm, so I would call it a hybrid model between the content team uh, as a discipline mm-hmm. and the rest of the marketing organization that creates content mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a hybrid model. Have I seen what works best? I, I am not certain to tell you for sure what worked for other organizations. Mm-hmm. You might be the one to actually share that. <laughs> well, the thing that I see across the board, and my next question is very related to this, we see that almost every company does it differently and mm-hmm. almost every company has a different definition of success for content as well, which, as you know, makes the measurement of it complicated because unlike a lot of display advertising, which tends to be measured in a more binary fashion as clicked or not clicked, viewed or not viewed, content is about so many different things. Everything from have you moved the audience emotionally to have you engaged them have they converted into a business event over what period of time? How many content pieces did they consume? So we're constantly trying to figure out not just what is the best organizational structure for the adoption of a consistent measurement framework, because that's what we want, but also what does consistent mean, right? Like, Is one content campaign the same as another? When you're targeting a certain audience, do you measure it the same as the targeting for another audience? And the answer is no, right? The answer is no. I think the utopia to me would be is if I could measure several things very consistently. Mm-hmm. If I could measure both at the content level, and I will use examples of sentiment mm-hmm. or message resonance mm-hmm. of it being utility to a person versus just saying somebody spent five minutes on your piece of content. That totally. means it's good. Right. Or some someone scrolled down three quarters of your page. That means it's good. Is right. it? Right. I mean, I often read a book and on the 10th page of the book, I close the book and I don't don't go any further. I do that quite a lot. You do that a lot too. I do, and, you know, yeah. Sometimes I, I read three books at the same time. And that's same. Like my I never finished them. Why, why is this book open? <laughs> this book is But the truth is just because they scrolled three quarters doesn't give me enough intelligence to know that they either learned something or they took an action. A lot of our content for Qualcomm is either thought leadership driven or product, product leadership driven, right. driven. We don't really sell direct to consumers. Right. And so it becomes even more difficult for a company like Qualcomm to find a way to understand whether the content is working. So the utopia for me would be to have an understanding of what they actually learned, if they did, and if it, they found it to be useful Relevant, yeah. as a utility to them, as a piece of content that is either moving them on knowledge and comprehension and understanding. So there's a content level and then there's a brand level met measurement. And... um 
and and if this was not driven necessarily always by paid media. Yeah. So if I don't drive enough traffic to the website or to a certain blog, I may not be able to actually learn how this blog performed. Yep. Unless I run some sort of a survey, it's hard to run a survey on each piece of individual piece of content. It's not. It's not. So, <laughs> so you, can, you can teach me how to do this. Well, I was going to say we're not called Utopia, we're called Notch. But... Yeah, I love that. <laughs> no, but you know, it's funny that you say that because um, we debate the value of our feedback unit. We we don't call it survey because we all hate survey so much as consumers that I feel like even using the word is going to have a you. negative affiliation. Yeah. Um, but but we, we talk about whether it's useful for content marketers to understand. And it gives me a lot of hope when you say that the, the relevance of an article is so important to the thought leader you're trying to influence. I feel exactly the same. We're using Notch in our own content blog as well, because I think that it's not just about have people signed on. Like the journey isn't direct, right? We're trying to draw a straight line between two data points that probably are not even going to intersect most of the time. And so how can we create the steps along the way to become smart around what's really driving influence, what's really driving engagement? You're right. I think engagement without context doesn't mean much. So couldn't be more in agreement on that. I really like your point about driving the influence. Because if you're driving engagement, that's a good thing. Check. But right. when you get to the influence, this is exactly where we are. It's like how we do, how do we increase understanding of something and provide a person who's reading it with a value that they take away. Totally. How do you measure that? Is this a real? Oh, that's a question. Yeah. <laughs> well, so first of all, the question that we need to answer across the board is, how can you build a flexible enough data collection platform that can be applied to any company, right? And any campaign. And in my mind, there's five big categories of KPIs. Mm-hmm. And some of them we already know it's impressions and it's engagement and it's social. But then there's two that I think make us different because we really pay attention to them. One is the attitudinal piece. And so essentially asking people, how relevant was this for you? And if it wasn't relevant, then why? And separately, was this valuable? How valuable was this? And if it wasn't, why? And matching that against what audience responded versus didn't versus responded positively versus didn't and correlating that across not just one content piece but many so that you understand kind of the trends across a period of time and across a campaign and then the final data set is around conversion and it doesn't have to be a conversion to a sale per se but I think it's important that you put kind of a stake in the ground and say look over a period of time this is our assumption let's say three months or whatever we believe that there will be a high value action taken that's based on the consumption of a series of content pieces. And these, these, this is our assumption of how many content pieces should be consumed. Um, and being able to measure that and how long it takes for people to get there is important. That's, that's why I'm so passionate about our new product, because that's exactly what it does. And I think without it, especially in the B2B space, you're left stranded in kind of a brand world if you can't really start tying it, even over time, to some type of performance. Some, some conversion. I, yeah. I agree. I, I think that earning that audience's time and attention is step one. Making it relevant. Oh, 100%, yeah. So you earn their time, you earn their attention, it's relevant to them, so now what? Mm-hmm. And so that now what, that conversion, especially for thought leadership, over time we want to move certain devices with our products right? as, as, as a proxy. But it's only a proxy. 
The second part I'd like to measure, and I'm curious as, as to your thoughts about that, is every brand has brand health metrics, right? Mm-hmm. So if content is serving a purpose of also building at the end of all this, mm-hmm. it's it's serving a purpose, bigger purpose, which yep. is from the brand standpoint where I sit right. and, and and it would be uh, a growing a value of a brand, yeah. of a given brand. How do we link those pieces, that individual content pieces that we produce day in and day out, eventually to that value? Like from the from the brand metric standpoint, we can run brand trackers. Everybody runs trackers and they have big, Questions like trust, momentum, association, favorability, awareness, et cetera. Taking all of the content, the body of work of content, so that somewhere sits in the middle level. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And linking that to the, those health metrics are another challenge I'd love to solve. Totally. I might be ambitious in saying this, but I'm not a big believer in brand trackers, not because of what they're asking, but because of how they do it. Um, I think when you trap people in in a confined survey and you pay them to say something or not say something, um, it's always difficult to trust the results. I believe that when you create content, you've already done a really hard task. In my mind, it's the most intimate digital experience you can have with an audience, right? So if you've captured them and you're engaged in this hopefully two-way conversation where they're getting value and you're getting their time, it makes sense to me that you would treat that audience as the audience that you would ask in the moment. How did this change the way you feel or was this valuable? And that over time, you track how each piece of content is moving sentiment either up or down and understand why it's shifting. So that's kind of the, the promised land when we, when we get to work with a company that's streamlined enough to even be able to want to measure that. Mm-hmm. And so it's exciting to hear you yeah, no, that sounds Say fantastic. That. By the way, thank you for these shameless plugs that you're asking me to put in. That's very kind of you. <laughs> you're here with me. I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, you should be able to talk about what you do. I mean, there is a reason why you created the the platform you created. There is. It's for people like myself and others in the space that are, frankly, have been struggling with measurement. Yeah. I mean, the amount of pitches I've heard from all kinds of companies about social measurement and you know, content measurement, and and everybody has a platform these Mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. So how do I make sense of all this? It's been a challenge. Yeah. Well, what's funny is I have absolutely nothing to do with this space. And somehow I think that's really helped because I can actually listen to people Mm -hmm. um, based on what they say as people as opposed to just the buzzwords. I think if I had been in an agency or if I had been in a social media company, I probably would be stuck in some pattern um, because a lot of the things that I saw in this industry when I came, I moved to to New York, you know, because I thought that's where all the marketers lived. (laughs) Obviously not. Um, But I was looking. Most of them do. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a good decision. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But but I was looking even at brands who work with paid publishers and the self-reporting that happens, the grading of one's own homework, you know. And I wouldn't have never noticed that that was an issue had I not been an outsider because I everyone else seems to just completely take this for granted. And I was like, wait, how are you paying someone to do something and then asking them to report back on how they did? That makes no sense. Um, And the more I started asking these questions, the more I realized no one had good answers to them. But anyway, let's get back to you because I have a couple of tough questions. 
I hope you're ready. I'm not sure. (laughs) I want to know what are, I mean, outside of measurement, which sounds like it's been a challenge, so that makes me happy to hear. But what are other challenges that you've had to overcome in your work? And in particular, I'm interested in how have you fought for content internally? And what have those fights been? Um, Is it about ownership of um, a certain domain? Is it about how media dollars get spent on content? Like, what are the the fights that you feel like you've incrementally won over time and it's led you to really create a space for content inside of Qualcomm? Okay, so there's a few questions here and they're, oh, no, they're, they're all interesting and I think they all kind of sort of tied together. But I think, I think, uh, I'm, and I'm not going to start in any particular order here, but I think that what's really important um, in terms of fighting for content and has been for us here at Qualcomm is to frame a strategy as why we produce what we produce. Because a lot of times content is done in silos Mm, in in companies and it becomes uh, a result in itself. So I produce content, that means I produce the result. That's the work I've done, right? So the question is as to why. Why hire people? Why produce this much content? Why put it out there? What does it do for us? And I think those are the struggles and tribulations that the the companies probably across the the brand world, brands, various brands go through. Some are more mature than others in, in this domain. And I think that... The struggle is to really have a solidified strategy that has some sort of objective behind it as mm-hmm. to why a story is told and what task it's supposed to perform, both on the individual level of the each content piece and the holistic level in aggregate. So that's one long journey that we've been going through and still going through. Um, I think the, the other parts of it is um, the amount of content produced. And I have some numbers here that I kind of pulled together uh, that I think just came came out of B2B research in 2019. Us, yeah. So uh, the spending, it says that 56% of B2B marketers increased budget for content creation. Okay, great. And there's a volume increase. So the B2B, and again, we're in a B2B space, so yeah, I speak yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. This B2B is audiences download three to 10 pieces of content before conversion. Hmm. So interesting a stat there. So how much content do I need to pr- produce on the same topic and, and continue to reinforce? Or, uh, different if audiences. you think about advertising, about frequency, right? Frequency has always been part of the advertising domain. And how many times do I need to tell the same thing in different ways, through different forms, through different formats before it actually resonates? Right. You know that we need to Repetition. hear something at least totally. three times before we actually absorb totally. it. Content as a whole or content marketing Discipline is lacking that structure right now. It's mm-hmm. a big challenge to know how many forms of content do I need to produce on a given topic before it actually resonates, which has been a, a school and science in advertising for years, right? You know, you repeat X amount of time, you serve the ad, and you serve it again, you sequentially serve it, and then you have some sort of conversion. And so the third one is variety. So it's, it talks about educational and storytelling formats, long form and audio visual are on the rise. We're doing podcasts here. We know there's tons of research that people actually, when they hear something, they perceive it way more and, and much more in much more emotional, impactful way than when they just see it. 
or when they just Hopefully, read it. Because that's what we're doing here. But yeah, that's why <laughs> podcasts have been, you know, kind of on the rise. So the, the, that visual and long form is coming back. This whole idea about the bite-sized, when we started 10, 8, 9 years ago, it all has to be bite-sized. No, right. I mean, you know, this, this has been centuries in the making. People absorb storytelling in ways they absorb them. If it's, if it's deeper, it requires longer. If mm -hmm. we want to just grab their attention, we may grab it with a shorter form, but then we need to take them somewhere to really learn something more. Mm -hmm. And if maybe it's through audio. So um, there's just a lot going on. And I think what I'm bringing it back to is just that the amount of content that we produce does not always equate to what it ought to be. Mm-hmm. More does not necessarily means better. Totally. And I think the quantity of content that's being put out there by brands today is overwhelming. Yeah. And the fact that they're increasing the budgets and that there is more right. content and the more teams are being hired. Do we need more content? Can consumers absorb this much content? Or do we need a certain type of better content? Mm. So I'm all about quality. And I just think that companies get lost in, 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 the, in the number of of things they put out there to the world versus the things that are really relevant and valuable. And that's a struggle, and I'm not saying we solved for it, but I think that's a, that's a challenge for content marketers across the, the world, for brand marketers, as to how much stuff mm. do we like throw at people and expect for them to digest. It's just too much. So I'm gonna ask you a final question in a minute. Um, and I want I want you to think about it. It's going to be, what do you wish you would have known as a content marketer 10 years ago when you started building the practice here? So think about it. Um, and meanwhile, back to your previous point, I think that the, the one, if, I, if there was one line that I could mark as the most um, popular line that I say when I meet with marketers, it's something along the lines of, wouldn't you rather know what content isn't driving impact and stop producing it, take all the money from that and put media behind the stuff that's working. And even you're, you're nodding <laughs> with, the with answer excitement. Is yes. Yeah. And I already and said everyone. that in the, my previous right, uh, right. Uh, answer to you is that quality and what works is much more important to me than quantity. And totally. so would I take away from churning and churning and churning endless videos or testimonials or talking heads or whatever that, you know, the next thing that the company believes may be important. And it may be important to someone, but is it really relevant and important to the audience we're targeting? So yes, I've caught it. Um, so that's your second question. Yeah. So let's go to the final question. What advice do you have for, for, the, for the marketers who love storytelling and want to get into it now? They're just coming out of university. Maybe they've worked for a couple of years in an agency. They've done the all-nighters. Um, and they really want to become a brand storyteller. What does that mean? How should they think about what job to take? And where do you think it takes them career-wise? Do you think the next CMO could be a brand storyteller? Absolutely. Yeah, of course. I think that we all as marketers have to be great storytellers. I think that's where it all starts. And so if you're a CMO and if you achieve that, that, that height, you must be a good storyteller um, because you have to, you have to communicate a value of your mm -hmm. company. That's a good to, angle to the, to the audience. That. So um, I think that in, and especially in today's sort of uh, 
grow, ever-growing digital domain and uh, content domain and brand journalistic domain and brand content domain, hmm. you have to be very well-versed. And, uh, and I would suggest to them to go and to work in as many disciplines as they can to hmm. really bring it all together. This is what helped me. So I'm speaking from experience. I worked in every marketing discipline except for product marketing, but I'm working with product marketing through uh, brand architecture and brand strategy work. And it helped me tremendously, the fact that I have PR background, that I have marketing background, that I have brand background and digital background and the social background, because now I can sort of, in my brain, connect all of those parts into good storytelling. But I think your job is really an intersection of all of those parts. Today, I think content is, today right? Today is my, my job. Today is, is intersection of those, right. all those parts because right. I run brand. However, and I have content within my organization, but I, I think that for those coming out of universities, they need to get exposed to all different parts of marketing mix to become stronger storytellers and therefore to be able to create uh, very impactful content programs. So that would be my advice. I like that. I also never thought about the fact that the really good CMOs who manage to stay in their jobs for a long time are actually just really good storytellers. Because you could be the most performance-driven CMO, but if you don't know how to wrap that data around with a story, then you're not that great. Yeah, and I That's think cool. that the second part to your question is, you know, for a CMO, they need to be a brand storyteller and they need to, uh, they need to measure ultimately the value for the company. So you have to continue measuring your content brings me back to the struggle we have with the measurement. <laughs> well, that's a <laughs> as, good as note. As the world we live in. It's a good note to... So the challenge that you posed to me earlier, and it kind of came to me, and it may not be the only one, but that's what just came, came now, is that for a, a company to truly have a holistic content strategy, you have to look at all of your channels holistically. I think dividing content into pieces and parts, social media sits over there, mm. and then your, you know, your brand produces content over here, and they have campaigns running, and it includes everything else, and then there is sort of the, the newsroom form, and the content people over here are producing um, content as well. That bifurcates, that bifurcates storytelling, and no matter how many brand trainings you give, no matter how much governance you do, to achieve cohesion and holistic approach that when people land on your channel, when they land on your brand, they don't really care who runs it. They just want a, a single story, maybe told in multiple different ways, but they want a story of that brand. Mm -hmm. And so I think we suffered from silos and bifurcation, and I'm sure other brands as well. So if I was building it from scratch, that would be probably a wish um, I would like to fulfill is where your content has cohesion. Mm. Not governance cohesion, not brand policing cohesion, but the storytelling cohesion. Yeah, yeah, I so. love that. Thank you. Thank you so much, It was Leah. my pleasure. This was an I awesome I really enjoyed chat. it. Thank you. That was my episode with Leah Sharif, head of global brand, advertising, content, and creative services at Qualcomm. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It was a really insightful conversation with one of the thought leaders in the content space. I thought what especially stood out were her thoughts around changing as you learn. As Qualcomm began to create and publish content, they were able to see what worked and what didn't, and to understand how people were interacting with it, and to then start reacting to that content and to people's feedback. 
And if it wasn't working, they changed it. To quote Leah, if you want to publish, you have to publish with an eye towards the audience first. And I think that really encapsulates the way content marketing should be done today, as opposed to thinking of content marketing as a strategic instrument to just improve brand perception across the board, I think content is now becoming a lot more scrutinized and a lot more personalized. There's this idea of really creating different types of content that will sit in different environments depending on what audience you're trying to hit. And that conversation with Leah, I felt really encapsulated that. I hope you enjoyed it. And for any feedback that you have, please email me at anda at prosandcontent.co. I would love to hear from you, especially if you'd like to nominate other speakers for us to feature. And if you want to hear more amazing content about the pros and cons of making content or being a better storyteller in today's world, please head to prosandcontent.co for more episodes. The best thing you could do for us is to rate, review, and share the series so we can grow the community and the much-needed conversation around the purpose and importance of brand storytelling. See you next time on Pros and Content.